All right. Welcome to episode 68 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Ian Owasa. He's an adjunct professor and doctoral candidate at the City University of New York uh, Graduate Center. His writing has appeared in Slate, Vox, Public Seminar, amongst others. He won the American Philosophical Association's Public Philosophy Op-Ed Prize in 2016 and 2018. He runs the Ask a Philosopher booth in locations around New York City and lives in Brooklyn, New York. His new book that just came out is called Ask a Philosopher, Answers to Your Most Important and Most Unexpected Questions. Welcome, Ian. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This should be fun. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And so just to dive into it, I mean, the thing that sort of sparked my interest the most was the philosopher booth. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of the history of it, kind of how it was manifested or how it came to fruition? And then also, how did you sort of come up with the idea for it? And how did you, I guess, most importantly, how did you see it as a need that needed to be filled? Sure. So um, I got the idea from a, a talk given by the, sorry, there's a fire. It's okay. Hold on. Okay. I live about 20 feet from Flatbush Avenue, which is like main drag in Brooklyn. A lot, yeah. lot of ambulances. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I got the idea for the Ask a Philosopher booth from a talk that, given by the philosopher Lynn Terrell. She was reporting on a similar project that uh, the philosopher Lawrence Blum had undertaken in, in Boston. Now, I, I misunderstood what the project actually was. I thought she was describing basically the Ask a Philosopher booth, but it turned out that what, what Blum did was he had as a kind of capstone project for a uh, philosophy class for like middle schoolers and teenagers. They would like go out onto the Boston Commons and like talk with people about their philosophical questions. So um, uh, I thought they were talking about something similar happening with adults. But <laughs> so I took that idea and ran with it. Um, I mean, that's kind of the, 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 you know, causal story of how this came about. I mean, the, the, the rationale for it is, is a different one. I had been organizing a public philosophy speaker series for a few years before that, which, which is still ongoing at the Brooklyn Public Library. And the speaker series is great, and it's uh, nice to give people an opportunity to, you know, learn about what philosophers are up to, learn about the problems that preoccupy them. But, um, you know, it's the philosophers themselves at a, at a public lecture who are determining the course of the conversation, who are setting the agenda. And I thought it would be uh, nice and valuable to have you know, ordinary people setting the agenda. So there are, you know, the questions that people, you know, are walking around with all the time that um, this ideas and techniques from the, you know, philosophical tradition can, you know, can help address. So yeah, so we set up this, we set up this booth. Uh, the first one was at Grand Ari Plaza in Brooklyn across the street from the central branch of the library. And, you know, a bunch of people came by and talked to us and uh, uh, we've done it a bunch of times since then. Yeah, like a handful of uh, professors and graduate students will sit around, we've got like a little bowl of philosophical questions written out on pieces of paper and a bowl of thought experiments and a bowl of candy. And, you know, so if people don't sort of have a question ready, ready to hand, which, you know, they usually don't, <laughs> why would you? Uh, 
you know, those, those, those can sort of start a conversation. Um, and then usually the, you know, the conversations will sort of branch off from there. Uh, what kind of questions do people come to you with or, or to the other speakers with? Yeah, um, I thought when we started this that people were primarily going to ask about um, questions which sort of come up inevitably in the course of like city life, um, that people would ask questions about um, gentrification, that they would ask questions about uh, work in the city, that they would ask the sort of um, uh, everyday sort of moral problems uh, that they've encountered and so on. And people do ask those things. Uh, and people, you know, people want to talk about Trump, people want to talk about the sort of state of, you know, political discourse in the city or, or in the United States. Um, but just as often, and maybe a little bit more often, they, they want to talk about um, questions, problems, topics, which are sort of totally removed from, from the, you know, kind of grind of city life. So, you know, people have asked, you know, uh, why does the world exist? You know, why is there anything at all? Um, uh, uh, a lot of questions about the nature of mathematical knowledge. <laughs> Multiple people have come by to ask us, you know, um, you know, how can we know anything? How can we know mathematical truths since, you know, uh, you, you can't literally see uh, numbers or mathematical functions? Um, you know, how, uh, uh, how do we communicate through dance? Um, uh, does God exist? The meaning of life? You know, these, these just like questions which are, questions which are, um, I think, sometimes, sometimes it's surprising that they matter to people. Uh, but in any case, they're questions which sort of remove you from, from city life or from, you know, from, from your immediate surroundings or something for a moment. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an enormous range. The answer is they, they ask us everything. Yeah. Yeah, I could see meaning being a, a big um, uh, issue to bring up, especially living in the city, right? I mean, uh, we're surrounded by so much stimuli all the time, right? We're always on our phones. If, if let's say, especially in New York, you're on the train, there's not a lot of that eye contact going on, rarely if it does, but mm -hmm. otherwise everyone's usually on their phone, listening to music, uh, maybe to an audio book, reading something depends yeah. right and i could see you know if, if there are so many people and um i forgot what it's what's it called 150 the dunbar number uh right where you were supposed to be living in groups of 50 oh, 100, yeah, 150, it's 150 it's 150 yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and uh if, if we're surrounded by so many people you know it's hard to have that sort of community yeah feeling and and vibe so you know so to speak mm -hmm. so i mean uh meaning can definitely be a big issue especially living in the city because you, you try to find your own people or, or community to be around and, right yeah yeah and how does i guess one answer that question for different people so it's like i mean they obviously come to you with the blanket question of like what's the meaning of life what would you say um well, I have, I, you know, I have, I have an answer to this question, which we get asked, we get asked about the meaning of life, I think probably more often than, than, than anything else, because it's, I think for a lot of people, a kind of paradigm case of a philosophical question. Um, uh, yeah, for the record, uh, my, my view is that it, it doesn't matter. Um, so that um, people are 
interested in the meaning of life or discovering what the meaning of life would be, or perhaps discovering what, what a meaningful life would look like, um, because they think that would uh, give them some kind of practical guidance or uh, sort of emotional reassurance. But, you know, to take a silly example, suppose that you were to discover that um, uh, human beings didn't evolve from our primate ancestors, that we were, uh, we were uh, genetically engineered and put here by a, by a race of alien livestock farmers. There's mm -hmm. a, there's a, there's in, the idea is that they would let us, you know, procreate and, you know, conquer the world and so on. And, you know, in a million years or 10,000 years or whatever, they'd, they'd come back and harvest us. Um, and so if this were the case, it's not, but if this were the case, um, there would be a, a very clear meaning to human life in general and to your life in particular, which is you were intended to, to feed these aliens. Um, um, but of course, if you were to discover this, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think, oh, you know, thank God, now I know my place in the world. You know, I know what I have to do with my life. I, you know, I have to uh, eat as much as possible and have as many children as possible so I can you know, feed, my, feed my alien overlords. I mean, the, you know, which all of this is to say that um, even if there were a meaning to life, it wouldn't have the practical uh, and kind of affective upshot that people are looking for. And so then the question is, well, what would, you know, what are people really looking for when they're, when they're looking for meaning? What, what would have that kind of practical significance? And um, it depends. I think it depends on the context in which they're raising the question, you know, what, 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 you, you know, if it's coming out of some sort of feeling of, you know, rootlessness or alienation or um, just sort of uncertainty about your, your life plan, um, well, you know, what would give you that, that sense of rootedness or, or belonging or, you know, some reassurance that your life is on the right track? Mm -hmm. um, different things for different people, but, you know, you could look at, you know, uh, psychological research on, you know, what, what careers people are satisfied with, you know, um, you could, uh, uh, you know, ask yourself sort of what, what groups of people sort of are, you know, have the, have, you know, by some empirical measure or other sort of better feelings of belonging or something like that. So, um, you know, I think there are ways of sort of, there are ways of addressing the practical and emotional demands which give rise to the question but the 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 way you address those demands is not by identifying the meaning of life so that's a long answer that's a long answer to a short question but yeah yeah so do you really think that when people are asking about the meaning of life that what they're actually asking about is how do i sort of foster well-being yeah yeah i think that's right i think like or sometimes it's about your personal well-being mm -hmm. sometimes it's about um having a have leading a moral life or a, or an impactful life. Um, and uh, sometimes it's about a sort of particular flavor of well-being, a, a, you know, a, a feeling of, you know, there, there are different ways to, to do well. Um, uh, I think if people have a, if there's a concern about your own well-being that you express in terms of the meaning of life. It's sort of like a concern about, yeah, it's a concern about belonging, a concern about um, having a sort of plan that you can uh, fully endorse. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's a, that's a particular sort of uh, constituent or variety of well-being. But yeah, yeah, I think that's right.
Yes, essentially what they're asking is what meaning does my own life have? Or what, mm-hmm. what meaning can I create or foster in my own life, right? Um, I, I can definitely identify with that, right? I mean, especially when you're trying to search for the meaning of life. I mean, essentially, if let's say you don't end up finding that answer, or let's say you come to the answer that maybe there is, there's no, def, you know, clearly objective. definable yeah. objective meaning, right? Then essentially the meaning that you would give to life is what would determine what you get out of life. Right. Right. And then, you know, would you say philosophically speaking, what we're actually asking? Um, so let's say if we're connecting you a uh, meaning to well-being, you know, kind of our own or external well-being or some combination of the two. But we say that, well, philosophy can answer that question by just looking around. So empirically, we could say when it comes to well-being, sort of this is what kind of usually helps people and this is what usually harms them. So let's say. I know. I mean, maybe that's too black and white, but maybe the idea is like, well, here's like the normal sort of way that people or not the normal, let's say in our culture, this is the usual way that people find meaning, right? They try to go through the sort of the avenue of status and wealth, you know, sort of prestige, um, you know, talent or whatever. And kind of like for the most part, we can say objectively, this is a lot of times how it pans out. But then at the other end, when let's say people focus more on their relationships, their friends, their family, they focus on being important within their communities, right? Within those maybe 150 people that they're around. That's what actually leads to kind of long-term sustained meaning. It's like because fame and kind of status and prestige is so sort of fickle, you can enjoy it for some time, but then maybe you'll even feel lonely and then eventually you'll lose it anyway. But whereas sort of this other path, you know, maybe again, empirically or philosophically speaking, this is what kind of philosophy shows is what leads to kind of overall well-being. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a really tricky problem and I don't have, I don't have a solution to it sort of what role there is for, um, you know, social science uh, and what the role there is for, for the tools of philosophy in working out, you know, what, what, well, what well-being is, what it is for someone's life to go well for them. Um, you know, the, um, the philosopher Dan Habron has some interesting stuff about this. There's, you know, the, a lot of um, uh, empirical studies of what's called well-being are studies of uh, sort of surveys of uh, that are supposed to indicate how satisfied people are with their own lives. So you answer a bunch of questions, you know, uh, about yeah, roughly about how satisfied you are with your life, and. Um, if you think about this, this is a very weird thing to ask people. About. <laughs> like, like if you, uh, you know, I, I don't have the surveys on hand, obviously, but like, if you just ask yourself, like, yeah, how satisfied I am with my life. I mean, you know, what the fuck are you supposed to do with that? Right? Like, <laughs> you know, like, like sat- satisfied with my life as opposed to what, as opposed to being dead right now? Well, yeah, I'm glad I'm not dead. Um, mm-hmm. Satisfied with my life as opposed to, you know, uh, the you know somebody else's life well okay i know a little bit about other people's lives but 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 not that much it's hard to make that kind of comparison mm-hmm. um so uh you know these so the sort of empirical study of of well-being ends up being the study of life satisfaction but life satisfaction is just a very bizarre construct and so um you know, so there's philosophical work to do there, which is like, okay, well, what would be, you know, if this survey isn't measuring what we want it to measure, then what would be a survey that measures what, what we want it to measure? Um, so, you know, that's sort of, that's a little suggestive about sort of what role there is for philosophy and what role there is for, 
you know, psychology and sociology, behavioral economics, whatever, in uh, in you know, just describing what a what a what a good life is for a person, what what it means for someone's life to go well for them. And I can actually envision philosophy being significant here because I mean, so I can't imagine honestly, I mean, I could be wrong, but I can't imagine a social scientist pretty much creating the argument that you just did saying, well, you know, life satisfaction isn't necessarily a good thing or is it, or what are we even really comparing it to? Mm -hmm. So why I think philosophy in this domain is so important is because we could look at the data and we could sort of foster or kind of create a hypothesis around what it says. So if let's say the data says, here are these people who are, let's say, um, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but mental health wise. Let's say, um, let's say you have a psychotic disorder and you find life to be incredibly satisfying, right? But you're incredibly detached from reality. Would we actually say that that person is happy or would we say that they're delusional or are they both? Can you be delusional and happy at the same time? Is it okay for them to be delusional and happy at the same time? Mm -hmm. So why philosophy here is so important is because it sort of takes some... Um, and I see this a lot, and look, I'm not a scientist, but I see it a lot in data or in research where people kind of have these blanket terms like life satisfaction. And I mean, it sounds or it seems nice on the surface, but I think philosophy creates a level of nuance that not necessarily doesn't really exist in science because I, okay, maybe that's not fair. But um, let's say I don't think it exists to the degree it does in philosophy and science because I think often in science, they're very quick to sort of point out, um, they're very quick to point out data, right? That's, that's the thing that matters more than anything. It's not so much of like how useful is this data, although, I mean, it still is, but it's about more about what does the data tell us? Whereas philosophically speaking, we're saying that, okay, this is what the data tells us, but then how do we interpret the data? What do we do with that data? So again, going back to a particular, let's say psychotic episode, yes, this person meets all of the criteria for life satisfaction. And even though the data is telling us that, you know, they, the construct applies to this human being, does that actually necessarily mean that this construct in this case equals something good or something positive for their life? So um, pretty much what I'm saying is that when it comes to philosophy, I think philosophy more than anything, and just it's tying into the theme of public philosophy in general, why I think philosophy is so important is because it brings in a level of nuance that we don't often see in everyday life and a level of nuance that I think we don't even often see in psychology or in social science as a whole, because I think we're so sort of, um, we're so kind of uh, zeroed in on the answers that we're looking for, again, like life satisfaction, that we often fail to see the bigger picture of what do those answers tell us and how important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, like, I think, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well. Okay. Okay. So the so <laughs> <laughs> a, a a couple of a couple of thoughts. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's an interesting kind of philosophy of science sort of methodological question for how psychologists and uh, behavioral economists, etc., sort of come up with the uh, concepts or measures which which they which they use to kind of approximate our our sort of everyday or authentic or whatever concept of well-being. And, you know, you can think of, you know, if you look at the sort of specific ways that they measure, you know, test, retest, reliability, or, or you know, construct validity in, in one or another sort of stand, you know, what one or another methodological standard for sort of proving that some concept is sort of worth pursuing, you know, mm -hmm. they're there are ways of poking holes in these practices or there are ways of raising questions about, um, you know, whether uh, something that, you know, is valid and reliable in the social scientific sense also necessarily measures something that we actually give a shit about. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think I'll add one other thing, which is that, you know, there are lots of ways of describing the, you know, value of public philosophy and their different sort of values that, attached to 
different public philosophy projects, and this is something we could talk about. But um, when you raised the point about meaning earlier, yeah, in a, in in a sense, it's 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 uh, it's not surprising that people uh, raise the question of the meaning of life because, in in some sense, they're 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 starved for meaning by you know our everyday experiences of you know being stuck at work or you know being glued to our phones or whatever it is mm -hmm. um, um but one way of kind of getting meaning out of out of uh philosophical exchanges to talk about it directly another way of kind of getting meaning is to get the kind of um uh intimacy or connection which just comes from talking about philosophy productively period so we could, you could get the kind of, if, if what you're looking for is a sort of a, a human connection in which you feel like your ideas are being valued and that you're, you're meeting with somebody else to reason about what you care about and, you know, you're sort of treating each other as peers, you know, we don't get that uh, a, a, a lot. And so, you know, you could be talking about why the world exists. You could be talking about mathematical knowledge but you're still getting this kind of intimacy, which you're not going to get at, uh, you know, in a conversation with your boss or something, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of a wash in the, you know, information overload you're getting from your phone or whatever. So that kind of, that kind, in a sense, this sort of meaning that people might be seeking by talking about the meaning of life, you can get by just sort of having any, uh, you know, successful philosophical conversation where you're, where you feel like you're being treated seriously. World. And that's sort of very similar to psychotherapy. So um, sometimes people think that, uh, let's say if you're going to a therapist for, you know, whatever mental health issue, that the therapist is supposed to be this kind of all-knowing person, sort of like a doctor, right? They're going to tell you exactly what's wrong. They're going to give you a diagnosis, and then they're going to give you a prescription, even if it's just talk therapy. The idea is they're going to sort of give you the blueprint of what to do. You have depression, right? You have depression for these reasons, A, B, and C, right? So if you do this, A, B, and C, your depression is going to be sort of lifted or it's going to subside. And so what I actually find in my own practice as a therapist is that it's very philosophical in the sense of a lot of times I don't have the answers. And a lot of times what I find that works is where two people are, um, it's this collaboration between two people and they're looking for the answers together. Where one person says, hey, I have this like information. And then the other person says, well, I have this information, right? So whereas I may come from a more sort of, um, let's say not necessarily academic, but a more sort of specifically academic um, perspective from psychology. And you know, my client may know some other things and they would say, well, you know, I have my life experiences and then I have like other things that I've learned in school or other things that were important to me. And you kind of put those two together and you end up sort of learning from one another. And that I think is very sort of philosophical because I assume that's most of the time what philosophers do. You have sort of different people within even interdisciplines. Uh, well, I'm sorry, even intradiscipline, interdisciplinary. But then you also have people, you know, kind of within different disciplines of philosophy and they come together and they say, hey, dude, like I have this information and maybe you have that information and let's kind of try to work it out together. And for me, it's like the answers, and I'm. This is what I'm sort of getting from you, Ian, with the booth. Is that the answers aren't so important, but what's important is that the other person is not only treated with respect, but that the other person kind of knows, like, oh, I, it's actually okay that I don't have the answers. But what I have to do is exactly what these guys are doing. I have to kind of go look for them. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think that in a lot of contexts, yeah, people, people, what people might the most important thing people might take away from the booth isn't, yeah, isn't, uh, yeah, the particular answer that we've offered to the question. It could be, you know, 
just that the question is taken seriously, you know, that you're not a you know, weirdo or that you shouldn't be, you know, ashamed for caring about this. Um, you know, hopefully sometimes, you know, the sort of, you know, you know, the discussion of some problem in philosophy has gone somewhere, <laughs> you know, we've made some sort of progress. And, you know, that, you know, by, you know, sharing whatever, whatever um, idea or tool from, from philosophy with, you know, a visitor to the booth, you know, they can make progress on this question too, whatever that looks like exactly. I mean, I think the, the connection, the connection between philosophy and therapy here is, is, is really, really interesting. I think um, it's, it's really actually kind of heartening and great to hear th your description of the, you know, way that you approach the problems that your, you know, patients, clients come to you with, that it's like a kind of collaborative sort of pooling of knowledge and ideas to take a problem seriously. I think that um, often in, you know, I haven't been in talk therapy in a long time, but when I was, you know, I, Jesus, when I was a teenager, I mean, it's been a few years, but the, uh, but when I was in talk therapy, I think one, one of the experiences I had was that like my, you know, what, whatever was troubling me, whatever anxiety I had, was fixated on often enough, at least, a, uh, an, act, an actual philosophical problem. Conversation would unfold therapeutically wasn't like, well, how can we solve this problem? It was like, where did this problem come from? You know, what happened in your life to give rise to this problem? And you know, that's a question that's worth asking sometimes, but it's a distraction from the problem. <laughs> it's not going to answer the problem. It's like, if you find out that, you know, um, uh, you felt like you weren't listened to as a young child or something like that, and that's why, and that's why you had this problem. Well, okay, that's interesting, but it's not going to solve the problem for you. So, um, I think that's one thing that 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 um, it sounds like your sort of practice, but also you know, a, you know, the practice of, of the booth it, to some extent or for some people can do is that it can take people's. Uh, problems and not try to diagnose them or sort of give some sort of causal story about how they came about, which, you know, people can, can somehow get, help people cope in one way or another, but it's to address the problem head on and say, you know, well, if this is what you're anxious about, let's, let's talk about it rather than talk about where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah that, that makes sense. Right. Uh, I forgot what the saying is, but yeah, if you, let's say you were shot with an arrow, you don't want to know, you know, and it hits you, you don't, you don't, you're not interested in the origin of the arrow, right. where did it come from? <laughs> What's it made out of right. all of that? You're interested in getting that arrow removed and, right. and solving the problem. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a, yeah. yeah, that's gorgeous. That's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a good analogy. Who was it? That was Massimo who said that, right? I think that was a stoic. No, I think that may have been I, the stoic. Actually, I read it in um, The Power of Now. Oh, that was Eckhart Tolle? Oh. Eckhart Tolle probably quoted somebody, probably Buddha or something like that. I just oh, don't remember. Uh -huh. Okay, I'm mean, going to have to Google that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's like, and a lot of what we do in therapy is actually, my, at least in my perspective, very philosophical. So, um, I mean, there are definitely, even I would say like the more, um, the more sort of, whatever, I don't want to use this term 
practice too rigidly, even though the term is rigid. So um, it's not, there are like these rigid sort of psychotherapies, like let's say CBT and kind of ACT. But the idea is that they're also very sort of collaborative and philosophical. Mm -hmm. So um, what you're doing is you're essentially like CBT is based on stoicism. So the idea is pretty much your interpretation is what's causing you suffering. So, I mean, it's talking about the origin, but then it's also kind of on the other hand, working on the issue at hand as well, which are your interpretations. And so the interesting thing is, unfortunately, where most kind of therapists falter is where they actually already have an interpretation in mind as they're trying to help the person reframe their interpretation. Mm -hmm. So it would be akin to, let's say, let's say Alan, you know, met me in the philosopher's booth and he was like, hey, Leon, like, what's the meaning of life? I'm like, oh, thank God. I, I all of these answers for you. I, I'm going to give you this whole sort of doctrine, right? So it would be akin to that because I'm sure he'd be pretty pissed off and he'd be like, like, who is this guy? Like, how does how do this you know what the meaning of life is? So a lot of times when people come to therapy, the understanding is that, oh, the therapist sort of knows better. So I'm going to come with my terrible interpretations. The wise therapist is going to give me his sort of enlightened interpretations and I'm going to come out and I'm going to be significantly less depressed. So unfortunately, that most of the time, that sort of therapy goes nowhere. So um, because we're people, and I think for a lot of therapists, because they're afraid of like not looking like experts, they kind of already know where they think they know, oh, well, I know what the interpretations are, right? I'm going to sort of bestow kind of my intellect on you and I'm going to teach you how you should be thinking about the world. Where um, really the best form of therapy is actually when it's kind of like... Um, where there's sort of a, a pretty much a substantial level of uncertainty where a person may give you an interpretation and you don't automatically jump in and say, no, 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 you're not, that's not how the world is. You're not seeing it correctly. Where you would have to actually explore that interpretation with them to actually see where it is. So kind of like um, what we talk about are sort of levels of truth. So is the interpretation 20% true? Is it 30%, 40, 50, 100 or whatever? But the point is you have to be willing to stay with that uncertainty because who knows, maybe you're wrong. Maybe your interpretation is false and by the way i find myself making these mistakes like unfortunately a lot of the time where i'm like oh no i know that this person's life or world or whatever can't be this way and um and sometimes i'm proven wrong and it's just i guess it is what it is but the point is from a therapeutic perspective i think a lot of times like and we get this from philosophy because and i want to give it credit this is founded in philosophy you're sort of coming to the situation you may have an answer in mind and that's okay by the way it's the problem is when people are married to the answers so the problem is when the person kind of gives you um, let's say contradicting data and you're like, mm, no, 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 that's not, that doesn't kind of fit with what the reality is. You're, there's something off there. I'm not even going to seriously consider it. And I'm assuming that's a lot of times what you got at the booth. So do these dialogues where the both of you are kind of coming to these truths together and that essentially what you're doing is you're saying to one another, okay, I have these sort of um, these maybe ideologies or these perspectives, but I'm willing to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there, there have been, you know, a lot of occasions where some encounter at the booth has like substantively changed my mind about whatever the whatever the you know subject is. Um, I you know I just to take one example. I, I think I, I wrote about this briefly in the book. Um, uh, I was talking I was talking with uh, an artist who came by about intellectual property. I forget how we got onto the subject of intellectual property. But I have a, I, I my general my general view is that just this system of copyrights and trademarks and patents is just completely broken, and the um, underlying kind of philosophical rationale in terms of uh, you know prop property rights attending you know it you know people's acts of creation is 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 you know probably incoherent, and you know said something said something sort of sweeping along those lines, and then this artist was like. Fun fact, <laughs> uh, like 
she actually um, patents a lot of her work. And which is, you know, it would be one thing for her to copyright them, but for some reason she thought that the, the, the um, uh, patenting would work because it would, at least in principle, if somebody else ended up using, so she would, if, you know, if she came up with a new technique for some type of screen printing or something like that, or just like came up with a new series of works, which just all some sort of central, central theme that she was elaborating. Mm -hmm. um, the thought was that, well, in the future, you know, if she ever wanted to, she could, she could, uh, you know, trot this out into the world. If somebody else came up with the same idea, she could say, you know, here, I got here first. But she never, she wasn't actually interested in enforcing the patents. I mean, both because it would be sort of, you know, uh, legally a headache, but also because like, she's not interested in telling people what they can or can't do artistically. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what, what she really wanted, it seemed to me, was uh, um, just a kind of recognition for her, for her originality. And she wanted some sort of seal of approval from other people that was like, you know, this, like I did this. And, um, you know, that's, I think a really, like that, that did that, you know, my kind of, my kind of uh, glib or sweeping view of intellectual property, you know, I didn't, I didn't completely change it. I still think that, you know, copyright and patents are for the most part broken in the United States, but I did take on this sort of more sympathetic view of like, well, part of what people are looking for in this system is like a totally legitimate and real thing, which is that they're looking for, they're looking for recognition. They're not necessarily looking to like dominate other people who come up with similar ideas or something like that. They just want, they, you know, they want some acknowledgement from the world, which of course they do because everybody does. So it's like this, this, so this, this little, this little interaction is just like so surprising to me. Um, and, um, uh, yeah. So, you know, and that, that, and that interaction wouldn't have worked, obviously, if I'd let this person, I'd let this person uh, tell this, you know, story about her experience with patent and said, no, 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 you're wrong. That's not how patents work. Like that wouldn't, that wouldn't have been a productive exchange. I had to have a sort of open mind in the way that you're describing. It had to be a collaborative thing. It, you know. Yeah. And it also seems to me, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be even a therapist or a psychologist to be able to do this. I mean, this is stuff that Alan and I talk about all the time. And Alan, who like has no, I guess, official training in any of this. I mean, he's as great of a therapist, I think, as I am. So it's like he has um, this platform that he created called Ego and Zell. And so um, what it does is, I don't want to speak too much for you. But, um, I actually thought you were going to use the example. So somebody uh, also has another podcast also oh, called that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Podcast. Uh -huh. And that came out like uh, what, a, a month or so like, ago. Yeah, a month or two ago. And then we were thinking, okay, wait, should we patent the show then? Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's not like, um, I mean, I can't speak to how they're doing right now. But from what I saw, it looked like, you know, they're doing their own thing. They're not necessarily they're doing something a little different from us, mm -hmm. but it does make you interested in maybe considering patenting it. So, so maybe if something happens in the future, you don't necessarily want somebody to be making money off of your name or, or right or the naming rights. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, or, or that, yeah, that, that, yeah. Right. If, if, yeah, right. If somebody ends up using sort of, you know, ideas, which you, you know, sort of are regard it's like very important to you that it's important that people not misinterpret them then yeah you can you can you know you'd want to you'd want to be able to, to stake some sort of claim if 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 people started abusing those ideas in some way or other but yeah sure 
Yeah, but uh, at the same time, I also don't know if we should necessarily patent it. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, I mean, it's it's up for debate as far as that goes. I mean, um, what exactly? If I understood correctly, uh, what is it that you see is wrong with copywriting or patenting exactly? If I if I'm not asking that uh, incorrectly, no, yeah. a good question. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I think that. Um, uh, medical patents are certainly one sort of very, very clear example of this. So, um, uh, you know, insulin has, but people keep renewing the patents by coming up with, um, you know, new ways of uh, delivering the drug. Technical it's just a way of like keeping you know, of scamming people for for money um oh wait sorry my internet is going in and out are you okay can you hear me all right uh, yeah we didn't hear no, that's good no. wait yeah we didn't hear the last thing you said uh okay yeah should i let me start yeah, that, that point <laughs> yeah. over then yeah about patenting yeah medical patents yeah yeah so i think medical patents are a pretty clear case here so you know insulin has existed the basic insight the basic discovery was made you know 100 or however many years ago you know but uh pharmaceutical companies keep renewing these patents by by sort of making these you know goofy not especially you know <laughs> innovative tweaks to the method for delivering insulin and you know the upshot is that you know um uh uh, they can't afford this drug, which by all rights should be very, very cheap. Um, the, uh, there's a whole sort of cottage industry of trying to patent things that already exist and have existed for a really long time. People trying to patent, you know, the toaster in, in like 2020. <laughs> oh my God. Like, with the thought that like, well, it's sort of, it's, they know it's bullshit. Everybody knows it's bullshit, but like you can, uh, but one in a hundred of these patents will actually uh, be approved, and then you can and then you can make a killing doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. Patent against all of the toaster manufacturers. So you know. <laughs> yeah, that's really wild. That so, makes sense. I mean, I guess my opinion would be on that. I mean, not to I guess too much to go into it, but I, my thinking is like something should be patented and something should not. So if like we agree that there's a particular, let's say medicine, right? Um, let's say if medicine obviously is for the greater good, then maybe that's something that we could kind of lay off. But then when it comes to like I don't know podcast naming rights or like novel rights or movie rights or whatever. I mean, if like that's your intellectual property and I mean, it's really mostly made for entertainment or whatever. It's not, let's say, um, it's not absolutely useful knowledge or not absolutely necessary knowledge. I mean, like that stuff that we can obviously patent, but the idea is there has to be some sort of balance, I think. Yeah, I think, I think the, you know, the underlying for, you know, copyrights, which are sort of more relevant to, you know, creative works, you know, written works, songs, podcasts, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the justification for it, I think, is that, you know, people need a um, financial incentive to, to do this stuff. Um, and, well, one thing to say there is that, well, not everybody, <laughs> you know, some people are willing to do podcasts for write music and stories and whatever for free. Mm -hmm. um, but another thing to say is that like, well, people can, there are ways of funding 
the arts, for example, that don't involve um, uh, people having some monopoly on the sale of some artistic good or service, which is granted by a copyright. So, you know, we could have, uh, uh, you know, so instead of having, for example, um, painters, you know, copyright their, copyright their paintings and then um, and then selling them and making sure that nobody ever makes a reproduction, we could um, uh, have more public grants for pay painters. So, you know, they could continue to do their work and they wouldn't have to sell it privately. Maybe, for example, this would have the, the consequence of having people do more public art rather than selling art in galleries so it can, you know, sit in somebody's home and only a handful of people can enjoy it, you know? So I think there are other ways of, so I think the kind of the, the um, whole, that's not always gonna work. I think you're right that like, yeah, there has to be some kind of balance here, but I think in reasoning about this sort of law of intellectual property, it would help a lot if we were more open-minded about ways of funding the activities that this the, the, the whole system of intellectual property is intended to fund, you know, mm. um, yeah. Okay, and then so kind of going back to some of the other questions, so outside of sort of meaning and God, I wonder, do people ask you kind of more personal questions or do they ask you questions kind of like about specific situations where they feel like they need guidance? Yeah, yeah, they do, they do. And you know, philosophers aren't necessarily uh, in any better position than anybody else to answer them. Although, you know, you might, you might be able to sort of articulate whatever the central dilemma is or whatever the, you know, values are that are in tension. But, you know, philosophers are just as, you know, fucked up and dysfunctional as, as everybody else. Mm -hmm. But, uh, um, but yeah, we've gotten questions about, um, I'll take one example. So somebody came to the booth and um, they had a friend who had a, uh, an adult daughter who had uh, serious mental health problems and had uh, gotten pregnant, I think, with her se it was second kid. So she had one kid that was already born and had just become pregnant with the second kid. And um, the first kid was already, so to be clear, it's a, somewhat, it's a somewhat difficult situation to describe. So the person who's talking to me is friends with a person whose daughter has mental health problems the daughter becomes pregnant for the second time. And so there's this whole sort of tangle of moral and, and the, and the um, daughter's first child, the, the uh, has, was already being taken care of by her grandmother. Right. Um, and so uh, there's this sort of tangle of questions here, which is um, uh, mostly, mostly revolve around sort of what it means to be a good friend and what when it's it makes sense to uh, 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 interfere with people's personal decision making in ways that you ordinarily wouldn't so um, uh, the you know what so would the grandmother for example have any you know way of convincing her daughter to get an abortion um, would uh, the person who came to me, who's sort of standing outside of this situation, but is but is sympathetic and you know cares about the people involved. You know what what can you possibly do? You know if you're sitting as a friend to a person who's in this you know kind of awful family drama, you know you feel like you want to help, but then like 
well, but that's how families work. They sort of have to solve their own problems internally, at least to some extent. That's just sort of what families are. And so, you know, what can you do as a friend to, um, uh, uh, you know, help out your friend, help out your friend's kid and so on without uh, feeling like you're, you're overstepping some bounds or, or vi violating, um, the, you know, the sanctity of this family in some way or other. And, you know, I think, I, you know, I, we, and I, God, this conversation was like three years ago, so I can't remember exactly how it unfolded, but sure. uh, yeah, that was, that, that was, that was about as personal as a conversation can get. But, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, there's work for philosophers to do there. Like I, like I said a moment ago, I mean, the work is, you know, identifying the values that are at stake and, you know, where the, what makes this difficult, what makes this difficult, uh, you know, a difficult decision for all the parties involved or a difficult sort of set of decisions. Sure. And then, you know, once you've got the values that, uh, that are in play, then you can ask yourself, what's the basis for these values? It's, and is this a sort of, is this a sort of special case where the basis for, you know, why we care, for example, about being a good friend sort of, sort of runs out, you know, in this particular, in this particular instance, um, or why we care about somebody's autonomy runs out in this particular instance. So, you know, so we've had conversations like that, a lot of conversations about sort of workplace, workplace difficulties. There was one, uh, yeah, I'm remembering one conversation, which I remember really enjoying um, but, uh, uh, now the details are escaping me. Anyway, the, yeah, that one example was, that one example was, uh, was, uh, was, was a trip. I, I just felt really sorry for the person I was talking to, but, but hopefully we were able to, we were able to just sort of iron things out a little bit or, or help her find some clarity, which she hadn't had before. Yeah. And you know, yeah, no, I, I really like that because it, it is a moral dilemma that um, that person's experiencing mm -hmm. and you're weighing, okay, uh, an abortion, which is already uh, morally questionable, right? You want to kill a child, you want to keep the child. It's also, is it something for you to get involved in? It's, it's not your family, it's their family. Maybe you should let them take care of it. Uh, weighing all these things and uh, taking the time to do a sort of philosophical inquiry allows you to sort of suss out all of these nuanced details and either, like you said, provide yourself with a little more clarity, at least in terms of, you know, the, the landscape of the situation, right. or it actually could lead you to an answer of, you know, actually, all right, uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe I should go with this choice. Maybe I should intervene. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't after sussing out all these details. Right. And I, I really like that because philosophical inquiry allows for uh, you to really see the nuance of a situation, whereas opposed to you just kind of go with the automaticity of everything and you're just kind of left helpless. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll add that. I think one thing that, you know, that kind of setting up a space, which is sort of marked as philosophical where it's like, okay, now we're going, we're going here to do some philosophy here. You know, you can, you can talk in this person who clearly thought about this, to a, a great deal. And I'm sure she talked about it with other people too, but she hadn't talked about it in a space necessarily that was uh, identifiably philosophical. And I think that, you know, telling people that they're having a philosophical conversation, the subject matter might be a subject matter which they broached many times in their everyday life. But uh, if you sort of 
indicated that, okay, well, we're doing philosophy here, then you kind of have to have, it sort of puts people on their best behavior in a certain way. Like people become more patient, people become more open-minded, they become more sort of careful to explain themselves and to, uh, and to you know, understand, you know, other, other, you know, moral possibilities or something like that. And I think this is, this is, you know, this doesn't always happen. There are, you know, mean-spirited, narrow-minded, nasty conversations, which are like marked as philosophical, but like um, at, at, its, at its best, this sort, of, this sort of space for philosophy can kind of nurture or foster um, sort of norms of discourse and norms of thought that are, that are productive, that, that, can, that, can, that can help people you, you, you hope you keep your fingers crossed. It's hard to know, but um, uh, that, you know, people can sort of take with them into the rest of their lives in some way or other, you know, and that, you know, these have, you know, the habits of mind, which you sort of, you know, adopt in one space can sort of, you know, live with you elsewhere. Um, yeah, one, one, one hopes. Yeah. And I think the one of the most important aspects of it is the um is the affective component. And so, you know, most of the time when we make decisions okay, I'm outside most of the time. Sometimes when we make uh, when we make decisions, we feel guilty about them. And we think, Oh my god, you know, I how how could I have like not seen this, right? How did I make decision Y over decision X and you know, look at the sort of the calamity that happened? And I think with uh with a philosophical perspective, if you're speaking with somebody and you're really sort of talking it through and you're sort of weighing out all of the options and weighing out all the potential risks and benefits and then making sort of you know based on reason obviously sort of the best decision that's available to you i think even if it doesn't go as well as you'd hoped or even if there is some sort of calamity look there's going to probably be some level of guilt but i think that the level of guilt wouldn't be as intense because then you can go back and say look i really actually just did the best i could i I sat there you know with my philosopher with my therapist or whomever you know we talked this out maybe we talked about it for hours and we weighed all of the options and this was the best case scenario for us at the time so even though things did go poorly and there were some sort of circumstances that for whatever reason i wasn't able to predict at the very least i can go back and say look i honestly did the best i could Hmm. God, I have I never thought about that. But yeah, you're 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 right. You're right that that there it's uh it's 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 one thing it's one thing to fuck up when you haven't deliberated very carefully in in advance. It's another thing where you have and you can say, well, you know what? I, you know, I I could have done this better, but uh but with the resources I had at the time, this is this was the best I can do so I can live with it to that extent. I think that's right. <laughs> And then we could even say, I'll blame the philosopher. I spoke to him and he, he told me the same thing. We both agreed on it. So yeah. it's not just my fault. There you go. Yeah, right. If nothing else, we're just giving an opportunity for all the good people of New York City to uh, to to blame the local college professors for <laughs> You guys are like the local priests now. <laughs> Absolve us of our guilt. Oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and it's so uh, what so what factors kind of um led to I guess the writing of the book right so how come you thought that writing the book was just sort of this thing that there was necessary to take it obviously from the locality you know from Brooklyn or New York City on the whole and to kind of bring it to a national stage yeah I um was approached by my editor uh Stephen Power who's who was then at Thomas Dunn books the the book is was moved to St. Martin's later on for pandemic related reasons. But um, um, I was approached by him 
uh, I think after I did a little radio segment, uh, uh, like a Ask a Philosopher call-in with my friend uh, Lee McIntyre, and uh, we, and you know, I, we just had this one one meeting at, uh, over you know coffee or a salad or whatever it was, and we uh, we just kind of very quickly I think worked out the worked out the basic idea of the book. I mean, I had had the thought of oh yeah, I guess I could write something about this at some point, but it had never really occurred. I, I wasn't thinking straight, I guess. I, I you know, it had, I'd never really thought productively about what the format would be, you know, what would like writing about this actually look like. And um, then, you know, in that conversation with Stephen, I mean, we basically worked out the structure of the thing. It's like, we'd have different types of questions, which we'd answer, it would be organized by the type of question, um, uh, it would be sort of sh shortish answers to each question, and then uh, little vignettes, little stories sort of sprinkled throughout, uh, uh, you know, the episodes, the encounters that make the booth, like, interesting. You know, there's the booth, the booth is about, you know, the I ideas and conversations it generates, but it's, but it's also sort of a piece of guerrilla theater, you know, so you get, you get the, so hopefully the, hopefully the stories kind of give that, give that theatrical um, uh, sort of sense. Uh, but yeah, I gotta say it was like, it was, this is like the easiest thing to write that I've ever written. Cause it was like, there were you know, some questions were harder than others, I guess. But the, because we'd already had all these conversations, um, mm -hmm. I wasn't transcribing the conversations verbatim uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but because, you know, I had already necessarily thought about each of it. <laughs> each of these things, you know, and I had to get my story straight. I had to, you know, I had to think harder about some things, think about what would um, sort of be most useful um, on the page. But, uh, but it was just, it just came very, very easily to me. It was just that it was a lot of fun to write. This was just like, you know, every, every day for however many months I'd you know, pick up one of these questions and then it's like, okay, that's, you know, if I feel like thinking about this question today, that's, that's what I'm doing today. Um, yeah. And that's what I love about public philosophy in general and just kind of your method in particular, because what made from a psychotherapeutic standpoint, what made writers like an Yalom super popular is because, I mean, even though he talked about concepts, the main, the main, the sort of crux of his work was not necessarily the ideas. I mean, obviously it was, but the most important part was the relationships that he encountered and the people that he encountered. And so what I think philosophy for the most part, and look, I'm not a philosopher, so I can't say for sure, but what I found it to be lacking was that it's mostly academic, right? It's sort of like we're talking about ideas and people definitely purport to have the knowledge of your sort of answers, you know, kind of behind the ideas, which is great. And I love that. And I think it definitely has its place, just like, you know, psychology textbooks have their place. But for the most part, I think what actually sort of grips people is literally the sort of encounters, whether it's sort of the philosophical dialogue or whether you're an Erd Yalom and you're writing like Love's Executioner and you're talking about these deep, intimate relationships you have with your clients and you're both trying to work and sort of resolve, um, resolve like difficult questions in their lives about love and meaning and sort of like, what am I doing with myself, right? Is this the right person for me? Um, are these relationships right for me? And so what I think, and I just, I'm going to assume this, what I think your readers like most about your work or even will like most about your work is that they'll probably be able to find themselves in it yeah that's my that's my that's you know at least my experience with some of the reviews that i've started to read so far is that some people are yeah several people have just been like yeah it's the 
you know, I like the book or, or yeah, I guess everybody so far has said they like the book at least a little bit. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's like the best part was, you know, these little, these little episodes. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's the encounters. And you don't see that necessarily in, you know, I uh, in, enjoy reading good, uh, you know, philosophy journal articles. Uh, you know, I enjoy the ideas themselves. It's, you know, and I'm, and I can get some, I, a whole lot of enjoyment out of just sort of reasoning through these things sort of in the privacy of my own home, just reading and writing. But, but, you know, yeah, a lot of the pleasure of doing philosophy and a lot of the excitement is the, is the interaction with other people. Yeah. Even in, in academia, as much as it, as, as at the booth. Yeah. Interesting. And then, so who are some of the thinkers who influenced you? Well, um, my deepest love in philosophy, I think, is, is philosophy of language. And um, what I, you know, the questions that I come back to the most are philosophy of language questions. And so the, uh, especially questions about uh, speech acts, about how, how we communicate what we do when we talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, the thinkers who've influenced me the most in that department are probably Paul, Paul Grice, uh, his work on logic and conversation, and what, what it means for somebody to mean something. Uh, uh, more indirectly, J.L. Austin, who's sort of the, you know, the father of speech act theory, but, you know, later, later speech act theories, theorists, uh, Kent, Kent Bach and uh, Mike Harnish, um, uh, Ruth Milliken is also, I think, a, like an important uh, figure for me in thinking, in thinking through speech acts and thinking about um, what it means for somebody to express themselves uh, in speech. And um, yeah, yeah. So in those, in, in the philosophy of language department, yeah, Grice, Austin, Bach, Harnish, Milliken, those are, those are people who really, who really affected me. I think um, I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a dilettante. I, I really, I like to, I like to think about, a, I, I'm restless. I like to think about a lot of different topics in philosophy and, you know, I guess outside of philosophy too. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, you know, I'm, always happy to read, <laughs> always happy to read, you know, find new, new writers in other fields, uh, you know, in social epistemology and ethics and meta ethics and philosophy of science, whatever it is, there's, there's, there's just so, there's just so, so much good work out there. And, you know, one of the things that philosophy, this is, this is, you know, the booth does this to some extent, but, you know, there are other ways of doing this in public philosophy. But one of the things that I think public philosophy can do is just like, the same thing that public uh, 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 physics, that popular science can do, which is just like, there's so much good science out there and we just need to, we need to let people know about it because it's just incredibly fucking interesting and they don't have an opportunity to find out about it, you know, in the, the everyday media. And the exact same goes for philosophy. There's just so much interesting stuff out there. And, um, you know, whatever we can do to, whatever we can do to, you know, bring people into those conversations, let people know about it. I mean, it's all for the best. Yeah, which is why we're so grateful that you came on because I think for the most part, that's sort of the point of our podcast. I know Alan says it all the time that essentially is to get these ideas that you wouldn't normally, I mean, obviously outside of an academic setting that you wouldn't normally hear about or think about and bring them to a wider platform. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Like a nuanced thinking, critical thinking, knowing when you're uh, projecting, for instance, uh, logical fallacies, right? Which is very interesting to me from the field of philosophy right? and, and, and biases, cognitive biases right. as well. It, it's interesting to, to know these things about yourself because then you can catch when you're, when you're making a uh, quote unquote mistake mm-hmm. and that'll affect your interactions with the world and other people. Right. And all of that is philosophy. Like, even though it's definitely psychology, I mean, you know, kind of going back to CBT, this is all philosophy. All of our concepts are based in philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 There's, you know, you get a question sometimes as a professional philosopher, like, well, how is, you know, your work in philosophy, you know, changed your life personally. And sometimes in some ways, this question is, this, this question is really hard to answer. You sort of struggle to think of particular theories that you, you know, have sort of uh, or papers you've read or something that have sort of shaped how you make decisions. And I can, and I can think of those, you know, I've, I've got those examples sort of, you know, that I can trot out, but there's a more sort of diffuse way in which just sort of the, you know, habit of, um, of taking ideas seriously that you are, that you find sort of uh, intuitively uh, very alien or difficult or strange. The um, habit of, of you might say, reasoning syntactically, you know, see, like taking, taking the words on the page and seeing what sorts of consequences play out from them um, uh, before you uh, think too hard about, <laughs> you know, exactly what everything means or exactly whether, whether this is true or not, you know, just sort of seeing, seeing how you know, the ideas sort of are logically structured. I, I think that's, I think that's a sort of, yeah, a, a habit of mind or a set of habits of mind, which you just sort of take throughout everyday life. And, you know, you won't necessarily notice their operation or, or um, if you do, it won't be, you know, in any given instance, you know, absolutely, you know, cataclysmic or life-changing or something like that, but it does change, but it does change your life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Alan, final questions before we go. Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to find your book, um, where, where could we buy it? Um, so it's available. It's called Ask a Philosopher, uh, answers to your most important and most unexpected questions. You can uh, find it on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble, where a lot of people buy their books. Um, uh, you could also order it from your local bookstore, which would... Uh, uh, maybe encourage them to keep it in stock, which would be, which would be a nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> and Ian, are you on social media anywhere? I am. Yeah. Um, if you want to, uh, yeah, people can hit me up on Facebook, I guess, if they want to, you know, my mm-hmm. name is Ian Olasov. Uh, well, I, maybe I should spell my last name or it'll be in the show notes, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. My name is, I like forget how to spell my own last name often enough. Um, but um, uh, there's also the, the, you know, the event series, under which I organize all this stuff is called Brooklyn Public Philosophers. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, people can check out the Brooklyn Public Philosophers uh, Facebook page or Tumblr to find out about future talks, about future Ask a Philosopher booths. Um, you know, uh, obviously during the pandemic, a lot of this stuff has been online, but um, we've, we've, been able to, we've been able to do some, some interesting stuff and stuff that, stuff that brings philosophers from all over the world together, which is nice. 
So yeah, you can check out the Brooklyn Public Philosophers Facebook page. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. This was so great. Yo, thank you. Yeah, yeah, this is a blast. All right, Ian. We'll talk to you soon, man. Okay, yeah. Take it easy. Bye. That was awesome. That was really fun. <laughs> right. So if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. And at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, subscribe, hit the bell. Hit the bell. And then you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com under the STM podcast section. All right, guys. Thanks so much for watching and see you next time.